Okay, well, it's uh, 7 o'clock, so let's go ahead and uh, get a start on tonight's events. And I'll ask Dave if you would open us in prayer tonight. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we can get together and uh, study your word, study uh, about you, study about the Holy Spirit. Uh, help us to understand and retain uh, what we're hearing. Thank you for Dr. Snowberger and uh, what he brings to us. And bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's go ahead and begin with our quiz here. Distribute that. Okay. Let's go ahead and go over these here and see what we come up with for some answers here. Number one, the Bible always uses masculine pronouns for the Holy Spirit because he is a person. It's a trick question. It's a trick question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So tell me, tell me, make it, make it true for me. Usually. Okay. Yeah, usually, yeah, that's very good. Now, and our point was that it's a, it's a, it's actually a neuter gender noun, but the Bible almost always turns it into masculine because he is a person. Uh, although not always, there's a few exceptions along the way. So good, glad you uh, figured that one. Okay, number two. The fact that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, John fifteen twenty six, means that the Father is responsible for the existence of the Spirit. False. False. So what does it mean? Yeah, it sends him on his mission, correct. So it's, it's not a statement here about the... The, the, the Father's production of the essence of the Holy Spirit. God did not, the Father did not create the Spirit, uh, but rather He sent Him on His mission. So this is in, in the economic realm, not the essential realm. Thirdly, here, God existed as Trinity in Old Testament times. True. 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 But why might you want to say false? Because they were thinking of it as right. right. He wasn't revealed as such in the Old Testament, but we know that God is immutable and cannot change. And so he was Trinity from eternity past, has been uh, Trinity from eternity past, although that has not always been known. Okay? And then identify some of the actions here that the Holy Spirit does. It can only be predicated to God, therefore identifying him as God. Just throw some out here. Okay, that's, that's an attribute of God. Okay, creation. Regeneration. Regeneration. Resurrection. Resurrection. Sanctification. Inspiration. Inspiration. We've got a good listing of them here. I had a couple more on the list, and some of them will actually start into tonight uh, because they are uh, part of uh, the works of God, the works of the Holy Spirit in the world. So that's the quiz. Wasn't too bad, was it? Wasn't too. Tricky. I always put in tricky questions. Yeah. I do that on purpose because I, I want to make you think. So if if they're too easy, they they don't they don't do anything for us. So uh, we'll go ahead and uh, start in then on our notes tonight on page eighteen, and we're starting this major section in the uh, notes on the works of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to start general and work uh, into a more 
uh, narrow work. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit broadly in the whole world. And uh, we're, uh, I, I start off by saying what Edwin Palmer says here. We're a bit myopic if we limit our discussion of the Holy Spirit to his activity in salvation and in the local church. I think that's where we tend to focus our attention and our energies. Uh, but the Holy Spirit's got much more to do uh, in the world than just that. He's got a significant function outside of the realm of the church and in believers. In his dealings with the creation of the world, providence, common grace. It's an issue we're going to talk about tonight at some length. Perhaps it's a new concept for some of you. Uh, we tend to think, I think, perhaps of grace as redemptive alone, but there are many graces uh, that uh, that come to us apart from, and in addition to, uh, the grace of redemption, and the Holy Spirit does seem to be the agent of these as well. He also had a significant role, I say, in the nation of Israel during the theocratic period, beginning with Moses. And in some fashion, until the advent of Christ, and so it's to these topics that we're turning now, so these broader works of the Holy Spirit, we want to start right up front here with his work in creation, where the Holy Spirit does seem to sustain a rather important role as the life giver in creation. We find, for instance, in Job 33.4, the Holy Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now that phrase, breath of the breath of God, the idea is that the creative activity of God is going to spill over into our next section as well when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, uh, which is described by the word God breathed. And so this idea of the breath of God, the, the, the wind of God, the Spirit of God, as God's creative impulse. So God is the one who produces the scriptures. And in this case, he produces the creation. So the material realm as well. It's probably a stretch to connect Job's spirit of God with the breath in Genesis 2, whereby Adam became a living soul. Remember, God breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. But both do reflect the same Hebrew word, uh, but there's probably a distinction of meaning here. Uh, to suggest that the breath of life shares its identity with the Holy Spirit perhaps is a little going a little bit too far. Uh, the Holy Spirit gives us life, but he is not the essence of our life. It's not as though we have a spark of divinity within us uh, because we are living, breathing beings. We also find in Psalm 104, 29 and 30, you hide your face. And they are dismayed. This is uh, one of the, uh, Psalm 104, of course, is a, is a creation psalm. In fact, it's the longest creation account in the Bible. We tend to think of Genesis 1 as the, the creation account, but Psalm 104 is another and a longer account. Uh, if, I, if I can put it that way, it's the creation account put to poetry. And it closes off by saying, uh, you hide your face and they're dismayed. You take away their spirit. They expire and return to the ground, but you send forth your spirit, capital S here, and they are created, and the face of the ground is renewed. So God's creative agent here, and particularly in the, the, the role of granting life, 
is credited to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he gives natural life, physical life, and then also we find in uh, Romans 8.10 that he gives spiritual life, so there's an analogy to be made between the two. We're not really getting to uh, the resurrection of the dead, that's a little bit further along in our notes, but I think there's an analogy to be made between the two. Spirit is integrally connected with physical life and in the granting of spiritual life. Just as the human spirit depends on the Holy Spirit for existence and sustenance, so also we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit for spiritual life. Okay? The Holy Spirit also sustained, I find here, the creation in Genesis 1-2. We find very early on, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, formless and unfilled. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this is you know, after the initial uh, creation of the raw materials of creation. Uh, the Holy Spirit is hovering over it, sort of maintaining uh, what's there, uh, holding everything together, sense of sustaining and protecting what's there until the unfinished creation could be completed. So the Holy Spirit is very active in the work of creation. But one of the bigger things we want to talk about tonight is the idea of common grace. This is really the Holy Spirit's function here and the providing impulse of God. We call it providence, right? Uh, the idea of the providing impulse of God. The word roots are the same here. And common grace is often what we ascribe here to the uh, to the uh, the uh, uh, the foundation for the providential working of God. So it's the operation of the Holy Spirit based on the atonement of Christ, and we'll have to defend that here along the way, and also upon his merciful and benevolent attitude towards all people, by which God immediately, with miracles, or through secondary causation, that is providence, restrains the effects of sin, provides non-redemptive blessings and enables the positive performance of civic righteousness upon all men without distinction. That's why we call it common, because we find the Holy Spirit is at work, even among unbelievers, restraining evil so that people are not as bad as they could be. In fact, oftentimes you find unbelievers that are quite kind, generous, friendly people, and this is all because of this work of the Holy Spirit in common grace. We'll start here with a little bit of a background here, why it's necessary to speak in terms of common grace, and that is because of the fact of total depravity. At the fall, all persons became totally depraved. That is, they became wholly evil and incapable, I say, of meritorious good. Meritorious good, and I, I use that adjective carefully here. It's not as though they cannot do anything uh, that is in keeping with the character of God. Uh, we find that uh, all of our righteousnesses in this state are as filthy rags. Nonetheless, they are true acts of righteousness, that is, acts of conformity, at least externally, with the character of God, but they are as filthy rags, that is, they are non-meritorious. So that's what I mean here uh, by this term. So all people are are born in this state of total depravity. 
Um, and so they're wholly evil, incapable of doing positive good. Nonetheless, as we look around at society, we do make some observations that, firstly, that these totally depraved people sometimes are nicer than Christians, right? That's the fact of it, right? They're benevolent, they're righteous. And our holy God, who cannot overlook sin or reward sinners, routinely keeps evil people in life and even permits them to thrive. So how is it that totally depraved people can do positive acts of good? And how is it that God, who is holy and cannot look at sin with favor, actually keeps these persons in life and actually heaps upon them blessings that are undeserved? Well, that's what grace is, right? Undeserved, uh, something that's undeserved blessings from God. And unbelievers get these things as much as believers, at least in terms of this common grace. And so, so, so we, we need to then talk about this idea and why it is that God is able uh, to extend these graces to people who despise him, effectively. I start out by saying that the only way that God can do this is through the atonement. Now, I don't have a proof text for you. I don't have a single text that definitely attaches common grace to the atonement. It's a theological necessity. See if I can't bear this, uh, to explain this. Conclusion is theologically necessary because, apart from the atonement, there's no ethical basis for a holy God being kind to unbelievers, sinful men. He cannot act with grace and mercy uh, towards people who are opposed to him and sinful. He might, And so this grace here that is extended to unbelievers, this undeserved, unearned, even unwanted favor from God, must be sourced in the same place all grace is sourced. Okay? There's only one basis for grace, and that's the atonement of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, let's talk about this a little bit further here. The atonement is a satisfactory substitution. We talk about this at some length in our doctrine of Christology, the work of Christ, uh, that the work of Christ on the cross is a work of satisfaction. He satisfies the wrath of God against sin. And it's a substitution whereby his both his life and death are substituted for ours. And for this reason, a lot of Reformed folk will pause in relating atonement to common grace because it makes then Christ a satisfactory substitution in some sense for all men. But since Christ's life and death are not substituted for those of the non-elect, because many of them go to hell eternally. So therefore, they are, they are not recipients of the redemptive grace of God. How then can they, they be recipients of the common grace of God? Well, let's look at some options here. Some will deny the existence of common grace. If a school out on the western side of the state, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, Herman Hoeksma was an early professor there. Uh, currently, uh, John Engelsma, Joel Beakey are some of the names you might associate with the school out there. 
Uh, for these, the postponement of God's wrath is not grace at all. So anything that God does in apparent kindness for an unbeliever is not an act of kindness, but is actually a heaping up of the wrath of God, which eventually collapses upon them and destroys them. And in fact, because they have been recipients of these kindnesses of God, their fate is actually rendered worse uh, because of it. And so for this reason... Uh, these folks will say this isn't this you know this isn't grace at all. Uh, this is actually the wrath of God, uh, perhaps disguised a bit. Okay, but I see here, and I say it might be plausible if common grace merely mitigated or postponed God's wrath. But the fact is, the positive blessings accrue to the uh, unrighteous, and I think that militates against the idea that re- unregenerate not only fail to receive immediate punishment. They actually enjoy life. They experience pleasure and joy. And so it's hard to look at this and say that this is not the form of grace in some sense. Others suggest that common grace is not a result of the atonement at all, but is wholly a result of the just the bare love and mercy of God. Which sounds good, but it's inadequate because there has to be some sort of an ethical basis for God to dispense grace to people who are wholly evil. God cannot, by mere love, overlook sin, whether that be temporarily or eternally. He has to deal with sin before grace uh, can be extended. So that doesn't work either. A third suggestion is that the atonement is substitutionary with respect to particular redemption, but not for common grace. So when we talk about uh, redemption, it is it is something that is a particular substitution. But when we're talking about the common grace of God, it's just merely a, 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 a temporary satisfaction of God's immediate wrath against sin. And so this is this is a possibility that's there as well. And so God saves the elect by his substitutionary life and death, but he assuages God's wrath against the non-elect only sufficiently uh, to give them some general grace. It's a possibility. Others suggest, number four, that Christ died a substitutionary death for the elect alone, but that collateral and incidental blessings necessarily extend to the non-elect by the consequence of God's electing purposes. This is how Burkhoff argues, and also John Murray. This is to say that the sun rises on the non-elect because it has to rise on the elect. Okay, So in order for the sun to rise on you and me tomorrow morning, uh, your unsaved neighbor gets the sun too. Just, it's just a collateral effect of God's grace to his own. He also argues that, uh, uh, Burkhoff does, that non-elect persons are held in life so that his elect children might be born and saved. So uh, if by, uh, by a, a sad bit of providence uh, your grandparents or parents are not believers, they were sustained in life so that you, who are one of the elect, could be elected. So that's an argument that Burkhoff makes. He also argues that violence is restrained so that the gospel can be carried out. So the reason God does not allow evil people to become as evil as they could possibly be is so that the gospel is able 
uh, to go out. This is why we pray for our leaders, Paul says, and Timothy, so that we can live quiet lives and have an occasion for sharing the gospel. Okay, so this is possible. But against this understanding are the following factors. It elevates God's electing purpose to the place of virtual exclusiveness in the plan of God. This is all that God is worried about, is saving people. And anything else that he does, it has to be somehow related to it. I I think this is a very narrow view of what God is doing in the world. God is doing more than just saving people. And I think common grace is part of the other things that he's doing. Also, it fails to account for the fact that common grace is sometimes enjoyed by the non-elect without any observable reference to the elect. You know, I, you always, it always used to be George, George Burns was the one that we always referenced, but people are forgetting who he was now. But, you know, a, a, a very wicked person who lived a very, 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 very long time. And we wonder, why is it that God allowed him to stay in life? There does not seem to be any redemptive reasons whereby God was keeping George Burns in life. Couldn't he have been kicked off at 80 or 70? Uh, But no, he didn't. And it does seem that the common grace of God is sometimes without respect, without reference uh, to God's redemptive purposes. So it does appear that God does uh, extend his common grace to unbelievers, not as as a, as a sort of, as a, as a sort of side benefit, a collateral advantage here, uh, but rather because God, in His kindness, actually, in some sense, assuaged the wrath of God at least temporarily against the uh, the wicked, so that He could extend kindness to them. And so I'm I'm inclined here to view the third third of these options as the correct one. So God's Christ's death intended all that it accomplished, including the benefits of common grace. So that makes sense, that follow. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics of common grace. What does it look like? We've sort of detailed a few of these things already, but let's sort of formalize it here. What does common grace look like? Well, by common grace, God maintains the universe. Colossians 1 says this, For by him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. The old translation has consist, right? Any of you, I see some some ladies, I think I'd like to to taste your baking, right? Talk about that. Consisting, right? You know, it has to have the right consistency or else it's not going to cook up the right way. And so that's the idea here. It all, it all holds together, okay, in a certain way so that God's purposes can be accomplished. So the whole earth, the whole universe holds together, consists so that his purposes can be accomplished. Acts 17 develops this as well. He gives himself to all, gives to all people life and breath, and all things, for in him we all live and move and exist. Okay, so all of these things are general benefits of the grace of God that accrue to all people. Irrespective of whether they're believers or unbelievers, they receive these benefits from God. 
By common grace, God is kind to all people. Psalm 145 says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. He's good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. So in some sense, all people who've ever lived receive something of the good hand of God. Matthew 5, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But it's not as though, you know, if you're, if you're a farmer and you're a believing farmer that you get more rain than an unbelieving farmer does. It's just not how it works. God is good to all. And whatever accrues to the believer also accrues to the unbeliever. In fact, Luke 6 says he himself is kind even to ungrateful and evil men. Okay, so this is God's common grace. By common grace, God also restrains sin. Second Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. It's a little bit of a controversial text here, but I, I understand it here. Uh, to be the Holy Spirit as he is operating in the collective lives of believers and they are effecting a restraint upon the wickedness of our earth until they are taken away in the form of the rapture when the restraints are released. Things get really bad during the tribulation period. Romans 13, For it, human government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Is the minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So we find here that human government is intended uh, to function as an agent of divine grace. Remember, I uh, took uh, uh, my uh, mentor, Dr. McCune, to the, uh, I remember I had to drop him off at a mechanic once, he has a car in the shop, and we were humming along and, you know, tucked behind one of those little bridges. There was a police officer sort of waiting, lurking. And fortunately, I wasn't speeding, but uh, I remember Dr. McKean said, Ah, there's the minister of God. <laughs> he said, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the idea. He said, he's there to restrain evil, uh, to restrain people from hurting each other, injuring each other uh, by being too excessive in their driving. By common grace, God withholds his judgment. Genesis 6.3, God's long-suffering would extend for only 120 years. Okay, But uh, by his long-suffering, by striving with men, my spirit strives with men and will continue to do so for 120 years until the uh, time of the flood. Acts 17.30, God temporarily overlooked the sins of mankind. This is what he did for you and I until we until we responded to the gospel. Okay. Um, sometimes we think the Lord is slack concerning his promises and it isn't judging sin as rapidly as we'd like him to, but then we recognize the reason for that slowness of God is his patience so that all men could come to repentance. And so we find here that God's goodness to mankind, this delay of God's uh, God's judgment is designed specifically so that they would seek him. 
And that brings us to that last point here, E, by common grace, God extends the gospel offer to all people. Do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience of God, not knowing that this is designed to lead to repentance? Acts 17, that passage we just read, God's goodness to mankind, his delay, his overlooking of the offenses of mankind, is designed specifically so that they would seek God. And so while common grace is an expression of God's long-suffering for mankind, it is strictly non-redemptive. It doesn't free the will. Don't, don't think in terms of that, that God is actually uh, you know, giving them you know, enhanced opportunities to respond, freeing their will, putting them in a state of norm, moral equilibrium so that we can act contrary to our depraved natures and choose God. But the effect is rather to store up wrath against the unbeliever. But that's not the intention. The intention here is to extend kindness. The effect is a storing up of wrath, but the intention is to display his patience. For the, and, uh, and he does so, even for those who treat him with contempt, trample underfoot the Son of God regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant whereby he was sanctified, <laughs> insulting the spirit of, I think, common grace in some sense. The point of these passages is to highlight the extreme severity of punishment reserved for unbelievers who have received the greatest amount of common grace. We find that illustrated perhaps in, for the folks in Capernaum, uh, where uh, Christ says to them, it's going to be worse for you in the day of judgment. Actually, it will be better in the day of judgment for the folks at Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than it will be for you. Why? Because they did more evil things than the folks at, you know, who were engaged in homosexuality and child sacrifice. What? No, because they had received greater amounts of common grace. Specifically, they had seen the Christ himself and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit uh, in, 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 in performing miracles right within their midst. And so God says, you know, this common grace, which I'm extending to you, is actually going to end up coming back to bite you uh, because you are resisting uh, these forms of grace to such a degree uh, that God's punishment for you is greater. Okay? I said that was the last one. There's one more here. <laughs> By common grace, God enables civic or cultural righteousness, and I struggle with the adjectives I use here because it's hard to know exactly how to, how to put this. We find, for instance, Jehu, by all accounts, really was a scoundrel, did well in executing what was right in God's eyes. Sinners do do good to those who do good to them. Unbelievers do instinctively the things of the law. Why? Because there is common grace extended to them. The law of God written upon their hearts. It's actually a restraint inside every one of us. Now I say here, the good that unbelievers do is relative. Again, I'm struggling for adjectives here, so bear with me here. That is, while these good deeds, honesty, virtue, benevolence, advances in science and technology, correspond visibly to the righteous standards of God and are thus genuinely righteous, they're always ill-motivated. And I put down Matthew 6 as illustrative of that. 
uh, the Pharisees pray and, you know, regularly. That's a good thing. Well, no, because they pray in order to be seen by men. So externally, the, the act of prayer is unobjectionable. It's a good thing to do, pray. But they did this in order to be seen by men. And for this reason, Isaiah is right in saying that all of our righteous deeds, those things that ex- conform at least externally to God's expectations, are as filthy rags and are therefore punishable. And I point to Proverbs 21.3 where it says, even the plowing of a field by the wicked is sin. You say, well, how can that be? Well, because they're always doing this for whatever reason it may be, for reasons other than those uh, whereby they might glorify God. Okay? So common grace is extensive, expansive, extends to all persons everywhere in abundance. Uh, but uh, there's there's something, there's sort of an ominous music playing in the background here. So what are the purposes of common grace? Well, it's designed to direct men to the Lord. We've seen this in a number of passages already. It acts, in sphere, it, it acts as the sphere in which special grace operates. But the salvation of individuals is not its sole purpose. That's not the whole reason that God gives common grace. God gives common grace as an end unto itself, not simply uh, to redeem people. Other purposes include the effecting of an orderly and decent society, which is why Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2, I pray that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on the behalf of all kings and those who are in authority so that they will effect for us a tranquil and quiet life and that we can live out in all godliness and dignity. And then it goes on, I think, in the same context here, to speak of opportunities for a Christian gospel. Okay, same thing here with this removal of the restrainer. Common grace then restrains the inherent anarchy, rebellion, disorder, chaos of the unregenerate. It checks the depravity of men so that it does not run rampant along the earth and then makes possible the advance of the gospel. So common grace directs people to the Lord, effects an orderly and decent society in which we can all live with in relative safety and, and uh, even wealth, to promote a general fear of God, Jonah 4. I know the story that uh, perhaps uh, you might have heard in Sunday school when you were a little kid was that everybody at Nineveh got saved uh, when, when, when Jonah preached the gospel probably isn't exactly what happened Uh, there's really no evidence that 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 occurred Uh, they did submit to God they put on the sackcloth and the ashes and begged God not to destroy them and I think in that sense uh, God was pleased even though it's unlikely that most of them converted at this time we we know that uh, uh, they've never really even paused in the wickedness that they were perpetrating in the ancient world. Uh, so it does not seem that there is some sort of sudden uplift of the uh, moral standards of the Ninevites at this time. Nonetheless, for a moment, for a day, for a week, 
They were paralyzed by fear of God and down on their knees begging him not to destroy them. And in that, God was pleased. A general fear of God was seen there. Same thing in 1 Kings 21. God postponed his judgment against Ahab when Ahab humbled himself before God. You say, Ahab? Isn't he a bad guy? Yeah, he's a bad guy. But at this point in his life, he did humble himself before God's sovereignty and God delayed his judgment. Ahab didn't get saved at this time. Nonetheless, there was a general fear of God that accrued. And finally then, there's just innumerable blessings that come because of common's grace. Uh, God blessed Laban because of Jacob. His, his animals were multiplied. God blessed Egypt because of Joseph. Fabulous wealth came to them. Uh, and uh, agricultural abundance because Joseph was there. A. A. Hodge summarizes this idea of common grace as the restraining and persuading influence of the Holy Spirit acting only through the truth revealed in the gospel or through the natural light of reason and conscience, heightening the natural moral effect of such truth upon the understanding, conscience, and heart, involving no change of heart, but simply an enhancement of the natural powers of the truth, a restraint of evil passions, and an increase in the natural emotions in view of sin, duty, and self-interest. So I, I have a great fondness in my heart for the common grace of God, much as I, I think, I think in, in much in the same terms as the, uh, as the, uh, the providence of God, this providing impulse of God, uh, whereby God not just saves me, but day by day by day grants to me blessings. And they're, they're new every morning, right? We talk about the scriptures, that the Psalms are particularly full of, of appreciation uh, for the providence and common grace of God, mediated, I think, primarily here by the Holy Spirit of God. Any questions on that idea of common grace? One question. Yeah. Okay, just make sure I understand this right. So, this sustaining effect, or like, for example, points A, B, and C, on page 22, you know, common grace helps to recommend the Lord, you know, order the society, etc., etc. With the, to the effects, like the, the note on the bottom of page 21, to the effect of essentially for people that aren't saved or don't become believers, it's, the whole time it's, yeah, I don't know if it's, it's storing up this wrath or storing up, and so that punishment is essentially like needed out, depending on yeah. the amount of common grace you receive. Yes, so apparently you've got a hotter place in hell for yeah. for folks who receive more common grace. Yes. So again, again, that's not the purpose of common grace, but it's, it's the, the effect, effect of common yeah. grace, sure. right? Sure. Okay. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was kind of like confused a little bit when you were talking about that the Holy Spirit. Um, or the common grace stops people from sinning, be, from being evil. Being as evil as they could yeah. be, correct. Okay, because I always thought that people had free will, and that kind of like, uh, it's like, how do I, how do I equal free will to the Holy Spirit controlling people's? Well, people do have freedom. In that they act always according to their natures or their most dominant impulse. But the problem, of course, with unbelievers 
is that they're totally depraved. They're sinners by nature and choice and cannot please God. So freedom is... Has, has its limit there, right? They cannot please God. Right. So right. the man without spirit cannot please God. And so there, there, is, there is a sense in which even though men are free, the freedom that they have is always generated away from, or directed away from God. Okay? It cannot be any other way. Okay? But the Holy Spirit well, keeps people from being as bad as they possibly could be and so that's why that's why the church i think we're we're effectively agents of god common grace in society we're restrainers on society you know the fact that you're in you know you've ever gone to the office and people say well sorry i can't say that bad word here because so and linda's here (laughs) well i mean there's a sense in which that's a restraint on the expression of evil if you weren't there they'd probably be worse Right, and so that—that's—that's that's what I mean here by the restraint of sin. Yeah, men freely do. Unbelievers freely oppose and and militate against God, uh, but by His grace, He keeps people from becoming. But they freely accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, only after only after they've been regenerated. It's the only the only possible way is if the Holy Spirit does an act of. Of regeneration in the heart, people cannot people cannot accept Christ without the the assisting work of the Holy Spirit. Which but I thought is, that comes after they receive Christ. Not nope. Before. Nope. No? Absolutely before. not. So, okay. uh, well, that's actually a topic that that's coming up okay. here. So we'll we'll talk about that. Yeah, but right. the, regen- the regenerating work of of, of the Holy Spirit always precedes faith because without the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us and giving us a new nature, a new inclination of the heart, new mind, new affections, we would never embrace the truth of the okay. Scripture and exercise faith. Okay. Good. Would you say that where common grace, let's say, abounds, it's more likely that the unbeliever, it's easier for the unbeliever to suppress the truth? There is a sense in which you're, you're probably right. I mean, there, there, yeah. I mean, you're not in any desperation, so you look at that as I'm self-sufficient. Um, right, yeah. I mean, common grace, when, where common grace is abundant, and I'd like to think in a good old U.S. of A, common grace is abundant. You know, we've got wealth, we've got safety, uh, we've got uh, food, water in abundance. You know, these are blessings from the hand of God that ought to direct us to him uh, but we become numb to it uh, because we have it in such abundance and we somehow are able like you say we're able to suppress this even though we're living in an ocean of God's common grace somehow we lose sight of where it comes from we just assume it's deserved yeah Then the, the effect of the suppression that takes place is that the, the grace that is extended and results in our salvation is that much more um, sensical in that it all is of God. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's even good in that. Right. Yeah. Yep. 
And that's the special work of grace. That's what we call special grace. Uh, so general grace, common grace, extends to all persons without distinction. Special grace, redemptive grace, is what accrues to believers alone. Good. Okay? So let's talk about this problem of sin here, that the Holy Spirit has uh, a very important role in suppressing and uh, and countering. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit's work with sinners. And there are, I say here, there's actually more than, uh, there's more than one work of the Holy Spirit that we should have in view here. In fact, uh, uh, I'll, I'll put it up here. The, the first work will be that of conscience, which is the most broad and most general work. Some ways, even though the Holy Spirit is the mediator of this, this is in some sense a mechanical thing, but we'll talk about that in just a second. And then there's the work of conviction. And uh, we need to define that very carefully here because I think sometimes we have um, funny ideas about what conviction is. It's uh, it's used broadly in society. It's just, you know, I have a conviction about something. That's that's not what is intended here by the biblical idea of conviction. Okay, and then there is the uh, the most narrow work of the Holy Spirit in overcoming sin. And that is regeneration. And they come in this order. We're going to look at these two tonight uh, because those are works of the Holy Spirit in the world. This is not a work of the Holy Spirit in the world. It's much narrower, so we won't actually get that to that one tonight. But we'll talk about here conscience and conviction. So what is conscience? Well, um, there's, I do give you some reading here, but let's talk about what it is. One of our key texts here is Romans 2, and let me put this out on the table here, and then we can define the term and talk about what it does. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, are a law to themselves. There's a lot of words here, but I think we we can figure this out. They show the work of the law written upon their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Okay, so the description here is of Gentiles, that is, people who do not have in their possession uh, the law of Moses that was given to the Jewish people. Nonetheless, even these people have their sin restrained in some sense by an an internal law. Okay, So even though they don't have the law, the, the, the written code of Moses that is given to the Jewish people, they have a law written upon the heart, and, it, they, and it's described here as their conscience, which does what? It alternately accuses them or defends them. We all have experienced it, right? Okay, You go to do something, and your conscience says, accuses you, no, don't do that, it's wrong. And if you do, it continues to accuse you. You know, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Or, alternately, it will say, good job. You didn't do what was wrong. And so this is something that is 
part and parcel of every person. I say something of a, a mechanism. Um, perhaps I could use a, a, a computer idea here. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of pre-programming that all people come with. We're all pre-programmed with a, a, a recognition of right and wrong. Now, we can mess with the programming, but none, that doesn't change the fact that we come with it. Okay, We come pre-programmed to understand what's right and wrong. So what is this? Conscience, literally common knowledge. We share a knowledge that God gives to us as a moral awareness of right and wrong that's shared by all people in God's image. It's what makes us persons. We have an awareness of right and wrong. We have a moral sense. We have a sense of moral ought. It prompts people to do what's right and rebukes people when they do something that's wrong. It's part of common grace in that all people have it, even people who do not have the law. It's part of the image of God and man. I say it's not technically a work of the Holy Spirit, but rather an innate providential mechanism that can be reprogrammed, which is illustrated in two observations from the New Testament. The conscience can become seared, as with a hot iron, right? Through habitual disregard. So if someone habitually over and over disregards the voice of conscience, the voice becomes quieter and quieter and quieter until he can no longer hear it. Okay? So conscience can be suppressed, uh, and it can be even reprogrammed, weakened or confused, so it sends false signals. Remember, Paul's talking here about the uh, folks who believe it's wrong to eat meat. And, you know, it's a rather an interesting problem. They believe because, you know, because of some background that they had, some misinformation, some bad teaching they received, they got into their heads that it's wrong to eat meat. And their conscience tells them, don't eat meat. And what does Paul say? Well, then you better not eat meat because you shouldn't disobey your conscience. Your conscience is really important. So obey your conscience. Now, he goes on and tries to convince people that they ought to, you know, revert to the original conscience they received, which says that meat is good. You know, meat is okay. It's okay to eat meat. It doesn't bother me if you're a, if you're a vegetarian or vegan. I have the word of God that says, you know, uh, arise, Peter, kill, eat. What God has said is uh, uh, is clean. Don't call unclean. So I'm, I'm going to keep keep eating meat. So, and why do I do that? Because my conscience, in this case, is informed by the Christian scriptures. Okay. Now, some people's consciences have been reprogrammed, and they send false signals. Paul is still very concerned that people follow their consciences, even when they when they when their consciences are telling them uh, something that's incorrect. So long as it's not itself a sin, you know, some, you know, telling you that right is wrong or wrong is right, it's a, it's a harmless thing to say that I'm not going to eat any meat. Uh, and so, if your conscience tells you that, by all means, you know, don't don't eat meat. Because your conscience tells you as much. Uh, so conscience is a very important mechanism 
that is administered, I think here, effectively by the Holy Spirit, but only remotely. It's really a mechanism, a bit of programming with which we are all born. So any questions on that? It's probably the most general of the works of the Spirit with respect to suppressing or countering sin. Yes? How does conscience interact with culture? Like some of the African tribes, the way they dress yes. or their lifestyle. Well, I mean... It, 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 I think it's it's I think it's in it's in every one of us as depraved sinners to want to rewrite our conscience. So, I, you know, what, it doesn't really matter what culture we're talking about. Every culture does this, right? Well, we have that going on right here now. You know, we've, we've got people who are saying that if you are opposed to homosexuality which our consciences tell us is wrong, that you're the one who's the bad guy, you're hating. And so they're basically trying to warp your conscience to say something opposite what it ought to say. Same thing with, uh, with abortion, right? You're, you're, you, don't, you hate women if you don't let them kill their children. And you say, what, wait, wait, come again? But what they're trying to do is you know, reprogram your conscience. Okay, so no matter the culture here, uh, there is a tendency to, to you know, from day one, to rewrite our consciences so that we're allowed to do more and more and worse and worse things. Nonetheless, we can't get away entirely from that conscience. It is a restraint upon sin in every society. I don't know if that helps. Okay. Okay. I think we have time to get through conviction here. Second work, this one directly attributed to the Holy Spirit, whereby he you know, tightens things down even further in his work against sin. Conviction. John 8, 16, 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So this word conviction, Greek word elenko, and I put that in there just because uh, most of the time that word is translated in your English translations. It's not translated convict. Um, so we're, going to, we're actually going to run through some English verses here, and you say, well, the word convict isn't there. Oh, well, yeah, it is. It's just not there in English. Okay. So it's a special work of the Holy Spirit, employing the word of God, that firmly convinces a believer of his, a, a sinner of his guilt, his need for righteousness, and the reality of upcoming judgment. So that's what I mean here, what we mean here when it says he convicts concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, convinces people of their guilt, their need for righteousness, and the reality of impending judgment. So the function of conviction resembles that of conscience, but it's heightened. The self-consistent, specific, comprehensive, uses the word of God to corroborate what the conscience already says. It consists of the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness concerning the immutable text of Scripture and bringing it to bear on sinners who now have the compounded 
restraint of sin. Not only do they have conscience, but they have scripture and the Holy Spirit of God uh, pressing those scriptures and their implications upon them. Okay, So it's a heightening then of what we see in conscience. It's not universal per se. It's not common to all people because many unbelievers never encounter the word of God and so are not recipients of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Further, not all who encounter the word of God respond to it. You know, it's sort of that uh, that illustration of, you know, good. There's a the, the gospel is preached, and then there's the invitation, and and you know the one person is there, and his his knuckles turn white as he grips the pew in front of them, and then and and you're praying earnestly that they would respond because the convicting work of the Holy Spirit seems to be great upon that person, but there's another unbeliever who's just standing there. When's this going to be over? Because now, what, what's the difference? They both were exposed to the same scriptures. And yet one receives the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the other doesn't. And so it's not, it's not, a, it's not, an, a, not an automatic thing that occurs. So it is a special or individual work of the Holy Spirit on select individuals. So it includes three factors that we see there in John 16. Holy Spirit convinces people not so much of their acts of sin per se. It could include that, but I think it's more. This is the realm of conscience. Rather, it's their state of sinfulness. The Holy Spirit convinces people that they are overwhelmingly sinful. And the means by which he convinces them of their sin is by highlighting their unbelief. Unbelief is not the only sin, but it is the capital sin. And so so, so this, this sin, this overwhelms them. Okay, because they are under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The word convict simply means to convince. Okay, don't, don't think of it as a magic technical word. It simply means to convince. Okay, so it's a convincing work of the Holy Spirit whereby he convinces them that in fact you are a sinner and your sinfulness is going to be your undoing. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness. And again, this is not so much his, his act of urging men to do righteous things, but rather to convince people that they are not righteous. They're aware of God's holiness, stresses their need for holiness that is found only in the atoning work of Christ. And both of these are proved here in John 16, 7, by the return of Christ to his Father, which may seem a little bit abstract to us. But when Christ returned to his Father, this was a signal that his own righteousness had been acceptable to God and he had fulfilled his mission to make righteousness available to the world. And so therefore... The, the the intensification of our need for righteousness and its availability is greater because Christ has returned to the Father. And then the Holy Spirit convinces us of judgment. That is, he convinces people that they're going to be judged for sin. And this is proven because Satan has been defeated. If Satan the greatest and most powerful of all sinners, was doomed by Christ on the cross, how much more certain is the doom of us lesser sinners? Judgment awaits 
our champion, Satan, has been destroyed by, at the cross, what's going to happen to us? Well, certainly nothing better. Okay, And so the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is tied then to the ministry of Jesus Christ as recorded in the scriptures and heightens the, the awareness of our sinfulness, our desperate need of righteousness, and the reality of impending judgment that comes upon people who do not respond in fav- favorably uh, to the saving grace of God. Okay, so conviction is simply a heightening of the of the fact of the realization that we are on the wrong side of the uh, of of the situation here with God. Conviction may be a direct work of the Holy Spirit. In this John sixteen, it does seem like the Holy Spirit directly convinces people, but it can also be mediated by other believers. Okay, we can convince people. In fact, uh, the uh, uh, the passage in uh, uh, the the, the, uh, the church discipline passage is is has this word in it multiple times, right? Uh, so, if someone sins against you, go and convict that person. That's the same word. Okay, go and convict that person. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen to you. Then go take two or three others with you and convict him. Okay, that is, demonstrate to him that you're a. That this is a. This is a terrible sin that you've committed, and there are great consequences to it. And if he responds, you've gained your brother. If not, then bring the whole church to bear. And so, so there's there, that's the uh, uh, that's the, uh, the and so we we find here that we can become then agents of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I understand that this convicting work of the Holy Spirit has been ongoing. I know John 16 casts it into the future. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will do this. And some theologians have suggested that maybe there was no convicting work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but I think this is theologically impossible. It's a preparatory work. Uh, to the self, to the saving work of God, and so it's really impossible to restrict this uh, to the current age. Okay, it just seems like what happens with the work of Christ is that conviction now has a body of data uh, that make it all the more potent uh, because of what uh, because of Christ's work. Uh, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is 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 more potent. It's exercised by means of the means of the Holy Spirit, and just about every time you see this word conviction in the New Testament, the Word of God is working. Okay, so it's not just something that you personally convince people that they're sinners, but rather you use the Scriptures to convince persons that they are in fact uh, sinners and in need of righteousness. Everyone who does evil uh, does not come to the light. Because if he came to the light, his deeds would be exposed. Same word here. Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public using the scriptures. And every every time we see this uh, italicized word, it's the same word, convict or convince, elenco. So he can powerfully convinced the Jews in public, demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Preach the word. Famous imperative given to uh, to to uh, pastors: preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince. 
rebuke, exhort. So the preaching of the word is a means of conviction. Uh, Titus 1.9, hold fast the faithful word that is in accordance with the teaching so that you will be able to exhort with sound doctrine and to convince those who contradict that they're wrong, right? James 2.9, you commit sin and are convinced by the law as trans- transgressor. So, uh, so it's, the, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, often through the mediation of human evangelists, and agents, but it's always in with with it, it, it's 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 never apart from the holy from from the holy scriptures. We tend to think of conviction as something that comes to unbelievers, but it extends both to regenerate and unregenerate people. We saw that, of course, in the uh, in the church discipline passage, uh, but we also see it experienced by the world, the ungodly, and the unbelieving. Uh, by professing believers, brothers, church members, even elders can be convicted. Now, the point here is not to uh, convince believers that they are going to, that they're in danger of hellfire. Nonetheless, there is a realization that I lack righteousness in my life, and that if I don't correct this, there, there are consequences. And that's exactly what the convicting worth of the Holy Spirit does. Sometimes it is effective in turning the sinner away from his sin. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you, he responds favorably and you've gained your brother. But we also have occasions here, for instance, in Jude chapter 14 and 15, which describe people being cast into, the he- into hell, and as they are being cast into, the hell, into hell, they are convinced. A lot of good it does to them at this point, but they are convinced at that point. That in fact uh, they were uh, they, they didn't respond favorably uh, to the uh, to the to the to the work of God's Spirit through His Word and His agents. Okay, so conviction is merely a convincing work, whereby people are made aware of their sins. There's a heightened realization of their need for righteousness and the reality of judgment. It may even cause depression or anguish. Now, this is in fact I, I want to pause here uh, because I think sometimes uh, when we uh, when we uh, when we talk about unbelievers we, we perhaps use a little bit the wrong vocabulary when we're describing them you give a you give a you give a prayer request I want to pray for my neighbor he's really close to being saved or you know he's you know uh, and, and and you're trying to you're trying to struggle with how to describe this person knowing that regeneration happens as an instant and yet you recognize that this person is not just ambivalent to the gospel. He's actually, you know, listening to you, you know, paying attention, perhaps even a little bit anxious when he when 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 they talk to you. How do you describe such a person? Well, it's not as though that they are somehow getting closer to getting saved, but rather they're experiencing the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so this this is this is how we should describe them. Uh, and when we when we when we speak of them, they're not actually kind of halfway, a little bit almost regenerated. Rather, they are they are under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And so perhaps it helps you to sort of classify people, even speak of them uh, when you give prayer requests and testimonies and such uh, in in the assembly of God's people. Okay. 
questions here on the convicting work of the Holy Spirit or the work of conscience, we can include both of those, yes. For believers, could conscience and conviction be considered through the Spirit? I don't... I, I think fruit of the Spirit tend to tend to be character qualities that we that we develop and cultivate as a result of the work of the Spirit. I'm not sure it is quite right to call them fruits of the Spirit. Um, they're works of the Spirit. I'm not sure fruit of the Spirit is quite the right language to use. You described and defined consciousness as the moral awareness of right and wrong, which is synonymous yes. with knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Which, when I think of the phrase knowledge of good and evil, I go back to the tree in Genesis. Yeah. Is that to say that consciousness was imparted to all humankind because of Adam and Eve's taking of the fruit? Well, okay. When, when, when Adam and Eve would have received, by eating of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, I think what is being the idea here is that they would understand it's not as though they didn't understand what good and evil were, but they didn't understand it by experience. And so by taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became aware of sin from the standpoint of experience for the first time. And tried then to sort of stand as arbiters of their own consciences. You know, I get to determine what is right and wrong. Uh, and so I think what we have here is the very first attempt to to twist and warp and change that conscience to say it can't possibly be that bad. And so I think we have the first you know uh, the first attempt here then to suppress uh, the uh, the conscience uh, and and actually rewrite it uh, you know, by a series of, of uh, excuses and such along the way. Do you think that humans would not have consciousness if they had not eaten from the tree? Yeah, they, yeah, conscience. Um, yeah, consci- not, not trying to correct you, but conscience rather than consciousness. Uh, but they would have had conscience, but only from the standpoint of you are doing good. They would always respond favorably to their own consciences so that if, in fact, there was an external temptation, for instance, to sin, they would say, no, that's... That's wrong. So I think they have a conscience, but but it would be a very pure thing. They wouldn't they wouldn't know sin from the other side. Okay. So is it is it accurate to say then that with the fallen nature of the world and the total depravity and, and all of that, that to tie it together, that common grace is necessary? In order to set the table for the for this to happen, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God. Right. I, I think these are actually expressions of common grace, which are necessary then for this to set the table for this to happen. But, yeah, for the resurrection yes. to happen. But it's dependent on. Well, you know. Uh, yeah, that that has to happen in order for the environment to be right for that. Thing. Correct. Okay. Okay. Our time's exhausted. So let's go ahead and uh, call the night, and we'll see you, Lord willing, here next Wednesday. Thanks for another good night.